Hello and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm John Duffley, the Communications Manager here at the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Today I'm joined by Tyler Hatcher. Tyler is with the IRS Criminal Investigation Division and he's currently the Acting Special Agent in Charge uh, of the Los Angeles branch. Tyler, you've a busy time of year for you guys, so I appreciate you uh, sitting down and joining us today. Yeah, good morning, John. Happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, so yeah, Tyler. So we 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 chat a little bit. Well, you know, we'll go back and forth and have a good conversation about uh, you know the division, what you guys work on, and especially this time of year. You know, tax season, something that obviously is, uh, I imagine, the busy season for for you guys. But as a bit of a background for our listeners, um, do you want to talk a bit about your experience? I know you've been with the criminal investigation division for 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 quite some time, for at least two decades. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your experience and, and what you do in your current role. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Sean. My my current role, we 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 call it SAC, Special Agent in Charge. So I've been a SAC of three offices now, uh, including Miami, St. Louis, and now our Los Angeles uh, field office, which basically gives me purview over our day-to-day investigations, covering basically uh, half of California. So uh, really from San Bern- or excuse me, San Luis Obispo, all the way down to the U.S.-Mexico border. So as you can imagine, we've got you know more than 20 million people, which uh, is is almost on par with the amount of time I've been doing uh, doing this with IRS criminal investigation. I actually just celebrate uh, my 21 year anniversary uh, this week. So I've been I've been all around the world with this job. I've seen every crime that we investigate. I've worked with some truly amazing people. We uh, you know we got the moniker that we're the finest financial investigators in the world. And as we talk about some of our cases, you'll see why that's that's uh, something we live up to. Well, congratulations on 21 years. And I, kind of my first question there is, is a bit of, uh, you know, your your time in the division, I'm sure, over the last two decades has been, you know, a lot of different things, a lot of different instances, changes in what you guys do potentially. Um, so I wonder if we could just start there, kind of talk about, you know, the, the criminal investigation growth over that time since you began. Um, and then kind of how that's changed through your experience and some of the things that maybe at the beginning you guys were, you know, maybe focused on, maybe those processes changed down the line, but kind of how you've seen the the growth of the division over time. Yeah, it's actually funny. When I started, we were at, at, at a, not an all-time high, but we were just kind of coming off of an all-time high in terms of our personnel. And and that's both our professional staff, our admin staff, and of course, our special agent uh, workforce. And and it's been a really a downward slide since that point in time. We've We've shrunk to our smallest point in the history of our our 100 year uh, existence as a federal law enforcement agency and just now with the passage of the IRA um you know we've gotten some additional money and some additional hiring uh that we're hoping to get our numbers back up so right now is really an unprecedented time for IRS and IRS criminal investigation to be able to kind of grow our ranks and really address many of the things that that continue to that, that, that we continue to see through our tax crimes. And of course, we're the only agency that can do tax, federal tax violations. And so that puts our purview kind of at a, at a pretty wide spectrum. We've got the ability to kind of be the experts at everything to do with, with money as we can kind of think that through when we think about tax crimes and, and the responsibility to pay taxes. That covers every facet of life, every professional organization, every professional uh, you know, job out there and, and everything in between. And so we have to learn how to, you know, kind of be experts in a lot of different industries. And of course, as we've gone through, uh, you know, many changes and tried to keep ahead of, of what plagues us as a society and, and us as, a, as an agency, you know, financial crimes are always kind of similar, but very different at the same time. The similarities are, they're always greed driven. They're always, uh, 
you know, they always leave a record. We, we can always see where money came from, where it's going, you know, obviously as it goes internationally and through some of the, the new crypto um, currencies that makes our job a little bit more difficult, but, but certainly not impossible, but the ways that criminals adapt to what we're doing and, and, and the scams that we see always evolve, but they always come back to kind of the same kind of overall broad uh, topics or, or, or scams as we like to, to put them in, in context. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I've, I've been, I've been in this industry just a short time relative to, to yourself, but the adaptation and the, the, how much this grows, but it really all comes back to your point. Those like central themes of greed um, that just, Run, run rampant over all kinds of industries. So I, I'm, I'm curious as we kind of talk a little bit about the criminal investigation division, um, if you had to elevator pitch kind of how the, uh, the process worked and what, what your division does, um, how, how could you distill that down? Obviously the complexities of it, we can get into. Um, but if someone were to ask, you know, what does criminal investigation mean? You know, could you talk a little bit about what the division does and distill it down and just to like an elevator pitch? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, IRS criminal investigation is the only federal law enforcement agency that's authorized to investigate what we call Title 26 or tax crimes. And of course, by by virtue of being good at investigating tax crimes, it makes us good at all financial crimes. And as we kind of look at that, we've got, you know, a lot of different uh, what we call program areas, of course, tax crimes, number one, non-tax crimes. So we look at the money laundering and currency violations that we find in, in Bank Secrecy Act and of course, Title 31 there. That kind of vaults us into the international realm, uh, gives us our narcotics mission. Of course, we're looking at the, the high level organized crime and cartels as they, uh, you know, try to get their dirty money really into, through or out of the United States. Uh, that's where we come in. That's put us in the cyber realm. Uh, as of really the last five to 10 years, we've kind of taken a lead on, on a lot of the most complex and highest value uh, cyber crimes out there. Of course, by, by virtue of looking at at our our mission on the financial side of things and narcotics and into the money laundering that gets us into some of the national security and terror finance uh issues that we see out there we've got a lot of robust uh participation in the in the national jttf or the joint terrorism task forces out there and and all of that kind of culminates with you know what we do at home to to kind of protect revenue and protect uh you know really all taxpayers every one of us myself included are are open to skin to scams and and the two scams out there that we always see and not really two scams of the two ways is you know criminals want to either get your information or get your money and every scam that we touch touches on one of those things one of the things that as i was doing a bit of research for this this podcast and, and looking through again a bit of that process you mentioned you know national international all kind of comes back um back home for all of us but it, it, it's interesting the the amount of diligence I think that the division goes into as I was looking through it. And so I'm curious kind of at the start of that process, um, when, so through the fact finding, whether it is an auditor, whether it's an, an analyst, you know, in, in your group, um, that early preliminary analysis and the evaluation phase of these red flags, what are some of the challenges that arise? You know, and obviously, like you mentioned, there's a, a wide range of different, you know, cases you guys may be initially, you know, brought up to speed on it and maybe considering, you know, pr pursuing, a criminal investigation into, but what are some of the challenges in that preliminary analysis phase um, when you guys first start to receive the information, first start to look at it and decide if there's something of substance here to pursue? What are some of the challenges that kind of escalate it from that initial, you know, rumbling of something going on to really getting to the point of needing, getting the approvals to actually initiate the investigation? Yeah, those are excellent questions, John. And, and I think if we kind of take a step back and look at the life cycle of a, 
of an investigation that'll show sure. us kind of where, you know, where those highlights and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, barriers are. And every year we push this out in our, uh, annual report. And if you look at kind of the, the ways where we get cases, we, we of course work with other federal agencies. We work with the U S attorney's offices. So those are a big chunk of where we get our cases. Of course, our own development through some data, uh, analytics and some of those things is a, is a part of that BSA reporting, uh, you know, from, from banks and such, uh, account for a, a, a fairly small chunk of those. Of course, the public is absolutely critical uh, to, to identifying and investigating cases. And then IRS civil and our state and local partners are, are kind of how we round that out. And so when, when a case comes in, it can be from any one of those sources. Um, you know, information comes in, we deem it credible or not credible. And there's a various, you know, there's various methods that we kind of look at that. And of course, talking to the person that's reporting the the activity is is at the top of that list, and as we evaluate those um, allegations, and of course they're allegations at the beginning, you know, my charge to our investigators is that we owe the American public uh, to be as efficient as we can, especially if the allegations are false. If, if we show up and knock on somebody's door and and the allegations are are not true, or there's just you know not any merit to it, we owe that person or that taxpayer, uh, you know, a, a rather expeditious closure to that process. And so that's kind of my charge to, to my investigators. But going back to your original questions, a case will come in or a lead will come in. We've got some internal things that we'll evaluate. Of course, we, we can open it up to some databases that we house within, within IRSCI, but certainly within IRS. If an allegation comes in on a tax crime and it says, you know, somebody isn't paying taxes and we look and they sure are, then that's pretty easy to move on. But we obviously want to know, you know, what's their lifestyle? What, uh, what, what are the things they're spending money on? What does their uh, financial picture look like? You know, looking at assets, cars, houses, boats, investments, uh, crypto comes in, of course, as we look at those things. And, and based on those merits, essentially, the agents will uh, present those to really me. It comes back to the special agents in charge to determine if, if pushing that case forward, uh, you know, is there, if, if the facts are there. And, and certainly, we're looking at you know, what crime do we think has been committed and the elements of those crimes? If any one of those elements doesn't exist, then a crime doesn't exist. And so it's up to me and my assistant special agents in charge to make sure that as we open investigations, that we at least kind of preliminarily think that that we can touch all of those uh, elements. And, and I think if you look at our statistics, when we push those out, we're the only federal law enforcement agency that has a conviction rate that, that year after year hovers around or above 90%. And so we're fairly good at, at kind of, uh, you know, judging the, the merits of some of those cases that come through. With that rate of success being so high, Tyler, I'm, I'm curious, is there, do you believe it's, it, it's a product? I'm sure, you know, there's a, a few answers to this question, but is that a product of the systems in place? Is that a product of um, you know, the education, I know one of the things I've started to, to, to hear from uh, different investigators, you know, across fraud is, there's that that striking that balance between people who have subject matter expertise who have been in the industry for you know 10 20 years with you know younger up and coming investigators who look at fraud differently who understand some of the current trends and we're going back to we talked about the adaptation of fraudsters coming up but it's all going back to the same kinds of schemes i'm curious why that success rate you, you think is so high like i said is it a product of the systems in place is it a product of kind of the analysts that that are you know in in charge of kind of following some of these leads or combination of both 
You know, I, I think it's a myriad of, of a lot of different factors. I mean, you hit one of them right on the head. A lot of us have been doing this for, for decades and, and we're cops, right? And cops, we, we learn to kind of trust our gut and, and we see these things because we've seen it so many times that we kind of recognize the red flags in a, in a fraud case. And we recognize, you know, the probability of, of being successful in a prosecution. And, and of course that can change as we, as we work with uh, the U.S. attorney's offices and and try to align our priorities, you know, something shift and, and we try to make sure that we're all on the same page as we do those things. But I think it also has to do with, you know, our, our review process. We've got, you know, several stages, both in-house counsel. Uh, we, we obviously, like I said, we work with the U.S. Attorney's Office, but we also work with uh, the main Department of Justice Tax Division, which reviews all of our tax cases. And so by the time we get through that process, you know, I like to say all the T's and, dot, and all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted several times, um, you know, and, and by the time that that case gets pushed over for prosecution, several attorneys have looked at it. You know, I've looked at it with my management team. The investigators have done their job. They've gone back and forth. They've, you know, touched on all of the elements of the crime and then push that forward. And, and you know, obviously we've got to um, boil down some of our, our schemes, which are very, very complex in a manner that that 12 jurors can understand it. And sometimes that is is a bigger uh, barrier than, than the actual investigation was. As we look at some of these things and I get some of these case recommendations across my desk, the complexities are, are you know almost beyond my capabilities. And I've seen this for a long, long time. And so there's a myriad of, of different ways that we kind of take approaches to that. And we've absolutely touched on the other thing. We've got some subject matter experts throughout our agency and, and both within the government that we can reach out to when we see something that we haven't seen before, we're not quite sure how to, how to figure that part out. And so there's a, you know, there's a real true um, saying out there, it's a whole government approach and many of our, our crimes, whether it's a, a straight tax crime or more into our money laundering or, or other uh, program areas that we need the help of the entire government to put these things together. And, and, you know, as we kind of touch into some of our, our case successes, we can kind of highlight how that comes to fruition. Yeah, yeah, actually, great segue. One of my next questions was going to be that, you know, some of the complexities of these cases that end up rising to the level of investigation, obviously, you know, getting approval with the DOJ and going to prosecution. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if, if, you know, anything that you, you'd be comfortable speaking about, but any cases, you know, maybe of national or inter international um, note in some of the complexities of those cases and how, you know, your division was able to really pull together enough evidence to, to move that move it forward enough to actually pursue prosecution. Yeah, we've had a, a few really high profile cases come out of the Los Angeles field office. You know, the one that that I like to talk about the, you know, seemingly the most, I'm a big, big soccer fan. And of course we just wrapped up the world cup. And, and if anybody's a, an international sports fan, they've heard of the FIFA corruption cases uh, that we've done. And that, that actually was out of the Los Angeles field office. And that started as a tax case. And if, if you look at the aspects of what it took to get that across the line, you know, we worked with many of our federal partners, of course, us and the FBI were kind of out in front on that case. And, um, you know, we've got dozens of individuals at the various, very highest levels of international soccer that were implicated in that many have pled, you know, guilty to their, to those crimes. We've had a couple of, of trials. We just finished one in New York a couple of weeks ago, um, that all of us, you know, maybe not knowingly knew, that we were looking at or watching the results of that, but uh, we just had a conviction um, from some Fox uh, executives 
that essentially bribed their way into getting World Cup coverage on Fox Networks. We used to watch it on ESPN and and some of those things. And so that's a you know that's a real life um, result of some of these fraud cases. And of course, that one touched on international bribery and some other things. But the U.S. individuals implicated into the into the those crimes had tax problems. If you get bribed and you steal money or, or, you know, run a Ponzi scheme, you got to pay taxes on those funds. And, and that's our, our, um, you know, our path into some of these investigations. We also just recently had uh, a rather large bribery case uh, out of New York where we were looking at the, the, essentially it's an international finance of one MDB where they stole literally, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars and paid bribes all throughout the world. And we've been seeing some pretty hefty sentences, you know, between 10 and 20 years when we're talking about those kind of cases more, more locally. But, uh, you know, some of the folks that are out there may recognize uh, Michael Avenatti. We just had a sentencing on his case. And, uh, you know, part of the job that I find most satisfying is keeping those who we trust, uh, whether it's politicians or attorneys or, 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 you know, those folks in those industries and keeping them honest. And the Avenatti case was a, was a perfect case in that one. He, uh, you know, settled several cases for clients and ended up stealing their money and of course didn't pay taxes and some other things on those those cases and that's how we got involved is to really you know these victim cases are ones that 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 you know hit home for a lot of us and we were able to kind of get in and find where the money went and and hopefully we're going to be successful in getting money back to victims and of course when we look at our tax crimes we're all victims uh every one of us that pays our honest share of taxes you know, have uh, an interest in our success in that in that arena. I love that mindset you said about keeping, you know, keeping people accountable, especially to maybe elected officials, maybe people who are in public office um, or higher office in general, um, but keeping them accountable and making sure that, you know, everybody's protected under them, because obviously, you know, these these kinds of things can can run rampant. If if I can go back a second, um, you mentioned a lot of these cases, you know, maybe you guys, you know, take on in your division, ultimately start as a as a tax investigation, but open up to other crimes. I wonder if there's a number or anything that maybe you you're aware of, and kind of maybe a percentage of the cases that that you guys ultimately pursue that kind of open the doors to other things that are happening behind the scenes, but they they all start with you know violations of of the Internal Revenue Code. You know, that's an actually an excellent question, and I don't know that anybody's posed that before. I mean, it's you know the way that we track our statistics uh, gets a little complicated in in kind of delineate you know, did this start into a tax case and expand mm-hmm. from there? And I can tell you, you know, as, as the tax crime investigating agency, all of my agents are aware that we, we're always looking for that. And, and whether it starts as a tax case and, and, you know, mushrooms into something larger or uh, more often than not, the U S attorney's office will ask us to come in, uh, you know, into an investigation that, that uh, is looking at something else, you know, whether that be in our narcotics program area or uh, Ponzi schemes or any other kind of investment frauds. And, and we'll get in there and, and, you know, we're brought in to essentially trace the money, look at money laundering. And then, Oh, by the way, you know, there's a ton of tax crimes here. And I think that's, that's probably, um, you know, just in my experience is probably a little bit more likely than, than, you know, starting tax and having it go, uh, you know, something bigger than there. just, there's a lot of protections uh, and a lot of laws regulating when we, even as the as IRS criminal investigation, can look at and use uh, tax information, and we're very uh, cautious of that. And so it's it's easier for us to look at, um, you know, some potential money laundering cases. And then when we see indicators of tax fraud, we can kind of go that way. When we start tax fraud and and open it up to money laundering, 
it's more of a natural transition just because when people try to hide their money from the IRS, they're probably, you know, uh, breaking other laws uh, in that process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, going forward a little bit. So kind of in, in the, you know, obviously in the next, you know, five to 10 years, um, the emergence of, of cryptocurrency, blockchain assets and transactions, I, I imagine has to change the way that, that, you know, the criminal investigation division operates. I mean, obviously, as this technology emerges, but as more and more people, you know, can start to get involved in it, they're starting to report cryptocurrency gains that they sell throughout the year when they file their taxes. As, as those cases come about, you know, how, how has the division transitioned a little bit? Because I'm sure it's a little bit of a different process being able to track that, being able to put systems in place and also educating, you know, not only your analysts, but the the the, the taxpayer about how to how to actually report on these and what it actually means to own digital assets. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, this particular instance and, and how this is kind of beginning to, you know, and be involved in what you guys do. Absolutely. And, and you know, digital assets and, and cryptocurrencies and anything to do with that, you know, has been this emerging trend and it's constantly evolving. And, and you know, if we trace that back, it actually started in 2009. So it's been around for a, a little while, but obviously the emergence as a, as a more stable platform for investments and purchases and that kind of stuff has, has kind of crept it to the front of the, the line, if you will. But you know, if we take a step back, really in the last five years, the IRS has kind of got out in front of this and treating virtual currency as a property. That's that's what, you know, IRS guidance says that it's it's a property. And that fits really what we've seen it used for other than, you know, when you get kind of behind some of the technology in terms of moving funds and securing escrow and some of those things, it kind of takes on a little bit different, uh, a different tone. But when we look at it as a property, for us, um, you know, really in the in the inception of more widespread use of crypto, um, it was thought to be this this way to anonymously pay for and receive, uh, you know, funds or goods or however it was being used. And I think if you look at our track record in those types of investigations, I think the one that put us on the map was, um, you know, Silk Road and Silk Road for those mm. of, of our listeners that don't know what that was, it, it's what we call a dark net marketplace. And if you think of uh, think of it as as Amazon for everything illegal. And, and you could literally buy anything that was was against the law, uh, goods, services, didn't matter on that website. And of course, you know, billions of dollars through at that time, Bitcoin went through that website. And, and our job was to kind of get in there, figure out where the money was coming from, where it was going to. Because even though we've got these these uh, illicit actors, you know, essentially operating in the dark corners of of the dark net, it is very difficult to identify who that person actually is. But the one thing that will never lie is who's spending the money, right? We're in that, you know, the criminals are in that business and we're in those investigations to figure out where the money's going, who's spending it and who's getting the benefit. And so that's where it started for us. And, and recently over the last two or three years, IRS has been kind of at the top of that podium. We look at the, the, the two largest crypto seizures in the history of government, the top number one and number two belong to IRSCI. And of course, number two, by a very small portion, as I, as I joke with my counterparts over in New York, uh, is home to the LA field office, which you know, has put us uh, kind of in line for taking those most complex cases. And as we look at you know, how taxpayers are, are reporting those and looking at the, the way that people are holding assets, um, we'll see that kind of emerge as, as a bigger position in our tax, tax crimes than we've seen in the past. We haven't seen a ton of them. I think that has to do with some of the instabilities of crypto. Um, you know, obviously there's people that, that have gained great fortunes, you know, through holding and buying crypto. But as we see that kind of tail off and, and really get some, you know, some stability to it, that'll hopefully 
open it up to more uh, of our look. What we've seen at NCI, and I call this the criminal efficiency, is the way that people move money. And, you know, in the past, I'd say maybe 10 years ago, it took it took a pretty considerable amount of time for criminals to get in the, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in, in fraud proceeds. And now it's, it's virtually overnight, and, you know, through all the schemes we see, the way that, that, that we can move money internationally through crypto uh, has really made it um, a lot easier for criminals to, to, to take away substantial amounts of money from victims or, or, you know, government entities or whatever it may be. It's amazing how, how quickly this kind of technology ramps up. And then on top of that, the, the subject matter, you know, again, to, to your point, it's only been 10, 15 years. This has really been mainstream and people are really starting to get involved in it just in the last few years, obviously people with lockdown during COVID-19, I think a lot of digital assets and things move to the forefront a little bit. Have you noticed that, that change though, with, with taxpayers and kind of some of the things that you guys are working on? of that subject matter expertise, just in, 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 you know, in layman's terms for a regular taxpayer who, who may have these assets. Do you notice them having the right information in order to you know, not only protect their assets, but to be able to report on them correctly? Um, or has it been a bit of an uphill battle for you guys, you know, obviously working on different cases, whether it be a business or an individual taxpayer, just so that they're aware of what they're actually getting into? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. I think if we look at, you know, the the really, I think it's probably been over the last three or four years. I can't remember when we first saw the the digital asset or virtual currency question on like a 1040, for instance. And and it's it's more of an education timeline. And and I think for us in criminal investigation, we we only see the polar uh, you know, opposites of that. We see people completely in, in compliance and there's no issues, or we see people that are just trying to skirt every system that they can find, you know, taxes including. And so I think as, as IRS kind of figures out what that trend is, we've seen some, some changes to that question. We've seen that evolve a little bit and we're trying to just wrap our heads around it. It's, I look at it as, as, you know, if you sell a house, those are some things that you have to report on your income tax returns. And, and I think if we continue to treat virtual currency as property, it's going to be very, you know, treated very similarly. If you buy, you know, enough uh, virtual currency and, and you, you expect you know, gains or losses, then those gains and losses have to be appropriately reported on an income tax return. So in an answer to your question, we haven't seen it yet just because it hasn't been around long enough. I think usually for us within CI, we have to see several tax filing periods, so years before we start to see some some maybe evolution of, of criminals figuring out, oh, okay, well, if I do this or I change this or, you know, put this amount down, then, it, then it'll actually work. We've got um, some pretty robust... Um, preventative, you know, computer systems on the IRS side, where if something looks completely out of whack, it'll stop that return from either being filed or stop a, a refund from going out. And so we, we, we always wait to see if the criminals are smart enough to figure out their way around those kind of safeguards before CI gets involved. I see. Yeah. And it'll certainly be one of those things that you mentioned earlier, the adaptation is going to follow and, you know, the, the opportunity for, for, for your office to, to see that in real time and be able to transition. I think it'll be It'd be interesting to see how, how quickly it evolves. And, you know, obviously the emergence of the technology feels like it's been so fast, but I'd imagine, you know, fraudsters are going to be able to do that, you know, two, two X once they start to situate themselves and figure out ways around what's in place. But obviously, you know, you guys being able to adapt even faster, I think is going to be what's, what's most intriguing to watch. Um, going forward a little bit, Tyler. So uh, this year, so obviously coming up on, on tax day, 2023 in April, I think one of the things, you know, myself kind of in my early 30s, it took me a little bit to kind of figure out what makes a good tax preparer, be able to look at signs of what to look for, qualities, credentials, et cetera. 
Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how to choose a good tax preparer. I know that's kind of a, a very general question, but whether it's for an individual or an independent contractor, a small business owner, whatever it happens to be, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what makes choosing a good tax preparer, what to look for. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, some of those more common red flags of, of someone who maybe has, has, has fraud on the mindset, a fraudulent preparer who may be looking to take advantage of somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we are ramping up, of course, the uh, tax deadlines in about three weeks from from now. And as we kind of do our public service announcements and reach out, and you should see this from from pretty much every special interest charge across the country, but, you know, picking that return prepares is, is absolutely invaluable for all of us, you know, IRSCI included. I mean, we deal with this stuff every day, but, you know, you just kind of want to put put your common sense thinking on. And I know many of, of our younger crowd crowd and and some of our, you know, newer um, young people entering the workforce and having to file taxes on their own for the first time, this will this will make, uh, you know, a little bit of a transition for them. But as you kind of meet with a, a return preparer, the number one thing that I tell everybody is is remember they work for you. So if they they ask you for something or they're making demands or you know directing you to do something and it just feels like it shouldn't be that way, then find somebody else. Um, but but some of those common red flags that we see is if they want you to sign anything that's blank, don't. Right. You are as a taxpayer, we are responsible for the numbers that go on that tax return. Whether you understand how they got there or not, you're still responsible for them. And it's okay to ask a lot of questions, especially if you're new in this process. So signing anything blank, that's that's a no-go. Uh, we always want to be very, very careful of the the return preparers that always tout, I can get you more money than everybody else, you know. Taxes are, are they're, they're a law and, and it's not like, you know, if we if we go to somebody else, we're going to get a different amount. If we are filing accurate tax returns, the refund amount, if you're owed a refund or the, the amount that you pay should be consistent. If you go to five different people, you should be getting five of the same numbers. And so always be cautious of those folks that are that are claiming that they can get you more than everybody else. And that kind of parlays into my second point is if their if their payment or their fee is a portion of what your refund is then that should be an automatic red flag. Now, it's absolutely appropriate for tax return preparers to charge um, sliding fees based on complexity or number of forms. That is absolutely normal, and we expect that. But when they're saying, oh, well, you're, you know, I'm going to take 10 or 15 or 20% of your refund, then that should be an automatic red flag. And, and another one that, that's a little bit tricky is be wary of those folks that want to take possession of your refund, kind of going back to my original kind of two things that we see criminals do. They want to remove you from your information or your money. And so that one's kind of one that's a little cautious. Now, I know that these advanced loans and, and some of those things kind of get into that realm. So be careful, make sure you ask a lot of questions and you read the fine print. But if you have a return preparer that wants to take the entirety of your refund and then they'll pay you out, you know, out of their accounts later, that should also be a red flag. So again, going back and and uh, demanding that you can do, you know, look at certain things, ask those questions, meet with your return preparer, you know, face to face if you can. And that that absolutely means you can, you know, meet with them over, over, you know, Zoom or, or whatever other uh, video format that you can do. But, um, you know, always, always kind of be on the lookout of, of what that what that looks like and, and you know, making sure that we all file accurate returns. And that that's also a good kind of parlay into some of the other things that we've seen. You know, every year IRS pushes out uh, what we call our dirty dozen. It's kind of the dirty dozen tax schemes or schemes to look for kind of around this time. And and I want to highlight one because I've seen a lot as we are on social media and, and kind of going through different media um, platforms. I've seen the employee retention credit issue come up time and time and time again. 
and that that credit it, it is a, a legitimate credit but there are a lot of things that you have to do to qualify for it. and i've seen a couple that basically said hey if you worked through the pandemic you could get this that's not entirely accurate there's a lot of other hoops you got to jump through so if you have somebody that's that's out there pitching to you hey you know we've got these different claims and different credits that you may qualify for and they're act, like that's their only job is to find people for these credits that should be a red flag as well if you have a good return prepared they're going to know which credits that, that are available to you that you're lawfully able to uh, to partake in and still kind of be weary of those things. Anytime you see somebody claiming that they're going to get you money from the from the government that that uh, you wouldn't normally be entitled to, that should probably be a red flag as well. Really appreciate those. I feel like a lot of these things, you know, again, when you kind of put them down on paper and you read them, feel like common sense. But you know, tax tax season can be daunting for for people. You know, not just younger people, but in, in my experience, you know, older people. You know, I've got parents and grandparents who have been doing their taxes for 15, 20 years and still don't really understand that there's those little nuances of it. So, really, uh, you know, appreciate you kind of outlining some of that stuff. Going from that, those small scale uh, instances, you know, of, of filing taxes on some of the broader things. Um, I'm curious with uh, some of the the broader, like, you know, more large scale programs that uh, you guys have been involved with recently. So I think the one of the more prominent ones, obviously, is the CARES Act um, that was released, you know, being able to help states, you know, appropriate funds to be able to help with some of those necessary expenditures, et cetera, um, tied to public health that obviously came from from the uh, pandemic. So as some of those you know, those funds started to get allocated and some of those fraudulent opportunities, you know, I imagine had to emerge from that. I'm curious how the criminal investigation division handled that. And then also um, kind of secondary to that as, as a, as a early follow-up, but how is the volume of those cases? You know, was it higher or lower than what was anticipated? Cause I'm sure when you hear $150 billion are going to be uh, appropriated for states and territories, tribal governments, et cetera, um, is going to go out, you know, the, the, the opportunity for fraud, I'm sure, had, had to be there at the forefront of it. Uh, but as the criminal investigation division maybe started to field some of those in inquiries, was it at a higher or a bit of a lower volume than maybe what you thought initially? You know, it's it's one of those emerging trends that that seems to be cyclical. I think back in you know the late 2000s, early 2000s, we saw identity theft was a really big problem, and and that's something that we had to kind of cycle through as as IRS criminal investigation to look into that and and the CARES Act and everything that touches on that. That can be PPP, uh, employment tax, um, you know, credits, EIDL, all of the unemployment things that we saw come with that was just another one of those trends where anytime you have you know, the government trying to to push out a program that has, you know, some financial assistance associated to it, you're going to have fraud. And so I think when we saw that, obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, when when the CARES Act came out, um, I was actually in Miami at the time. And South Florida seemed to have that's almost all we were working. It was a crazy amount. So so it was definitely more than I think we were ready for. Um, but we've done a really good job of, of adapting quickly and, and looking at those cases. And and the nice thing about those cases is they're not super complex. What we were kind of seeing at the beginning in order to qualify, and, and I'll just you know point out PPP or the Payment Protection Program or Paycheck pay, uh, Protection Program, um, is that you had to you know essentially have a business and have employees and have some other things that you had to show that you were qualified for those those funds. And as we looked into them, you know, these are businesses that, that had existed for the sole purpose of committing fraud. So they weren't open for very long, of course, no employees. So they were fairly easy to, to, to see. And as we've kind of, you know, had a couple of years since, since the passage of, of the CARES Act, um, you know, the complexities have, have increased a little bit because people, 
uh, or criminals were able to kind of know that that's what we were looking at. So they were setting up some of these, you know, shell corporations or shell entities and, and letting them sit there for a little bit longer. Uh, but you, you, you can't invent employees. And so that's kind of the part of this that's fairly easy for us to target and to, uh, to notice. And, and, you know, speaking of volume, and we just pushed this out in a, in a release, I think yesterday, that we've looked at 975 both tax and money laundering investigations as it, as it applies to our CARES Act uh, initiatives. And that's re resulted in, um, you know, alleged loss of $3.2 billion, which is a crazy wow. amount of money. And, and, you know, we're seeing very similar trends that we saw, uh, you know, with our identity theft mission, like I said, about a decade ago, in that the initial onset of these crimes were done by fairly sophisticated business owners or, you know, wannabe business owners that kind of knew the process. And, and then it kind of devolved from there to see we've got gang members doing it now. We've got some less sophisticated folks that are kind of, you know, trying their luck at this, at this crime. And we're, we're, we're catching a lot of these, you know, kind of bigger fraud and then we're getting some, some really good sentences, which should tell the public, you know, anytime you steal money that, that was intended for people that legitimately need it. I mean, we're talking about, you know, businesses that, that are in our local communities that, that, can't stay afloat otherwise and and when you divert that money you're hurting your own communities and we uh we want to be aggressive with those uh those investigations and and you know teaming up with our federal partners and certainly the u.s attorney's offices in pushing really hefty sentences and we've seen that it's been five to ten to twenty years on some of these things and the amount of money that that we're seeing some of the more sophisticated folks uh bring in is is you know in the millions and millions of dollars where they're they're recruiting people again, going back to my advice on, on picking a return preparer. If they're, if you're getting recruited to, to file an application for a loan that you, you know, you number one, don't need, and then secondarily are not entitled to, you're committing a federal crime and, and IRS criminal investigation treats that very, very seriously. And we're investigating those as aggressively as we can. Yeah. I think this is, this is great. I wouldn't necessarily call it precedent, maybe not be the right word, but you know, it being how unprecedented this, you know, this kind of rollout was in this money, you know, being to your point, necessary for small businesses, necessary for communities, kind of laying that laying that track down of, you know, even if, the, you know, even outside of these instances, if you are going to take money, if you are going to try to file, you know, false PPP loans and false applications and things, these sentences are going to be serious and they're going to be very real, um, you know, not just in, in, you know, like I said, everyday instances, but in, in times like this, where this money needs to come out because you know, the public needs it. And when you take advantage of it, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be on you to cut, to pay the piper, if you will, when that time comes. Absolutely. And, and for us, these crimes, you know, they're, they're not hard to find. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think when we initially sat down and, and, you know, kind of put that whole government uh, approach to it and working obviously, you know, obviously hand in hand with banks and, and financial institutions that were administering these loans, it was, I mean, it was really easy to see that there was fraud kind of from the onset, which is not normal for us. We usually have to do a little bit of digging and, you know, looking at databases and talking to folks and, and doing a little bit more work. But these PPP loans and, and some other things are, you can tell it's fraudulent from the first time we hear of something. So it's pretty easy to pick out, uh, you know, the criminals that are executing these crimes. And then I, one, of, one of the other things I wanted to make sure we, we get to, Tyler, as you mentioned earlier, but the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act allocation for the IRS to your point you know maybe you know 15 20 years ago where the uh, departments were a little more robust then you know this is really going to provide the IRS the opportunity to hire 
you know, more services, more folks to enforce the tax code uh, really over the next decade, I think through 2031, if I'm not mistaken, through that fiscal year um, is where all this is going to be able to be rolled out. So I'm, I'm curious in, in your opinion, kind of how, you know, the IRA is going to impact criminal investigation long term, uh, not just in your branch, but kind of across the country. Yeah, no, that's like I said, in, in the beginning of our podcast, we talked about, you know, how we've just been on a downward slide. And I think the statistics show that within the next five years, you know, almost half of our workforce is eligible for retirement. So we've obviously got to start planning ahead for that. And and with the IRA money coming in and hiring coming in, I think everybody's heard, you know, the the hiring of, of almost 90,000 uh, employees. And, and, you know, I wish that that I could even get a very, very small, even a 1% portion of that for for CI and and of course, uh, not all of those employees are coming to CI. Not all of those employees are are uh, you know going to carry guns like we do. But you know we within CI are looking at at absolutely upping our our special agent numbers and and our professional staff and investigative uh, assistance personnel to to really give the a, a proper amount of service to the taxpayers that we serve. You know, for my division in, in Los Angeles, you know we've got under two hundred uh, criminal investigators and we serve you know, population of almost 28 million. So obviously that, that number is, is completely out of whack. Um, but as the IRA money comes in, we're aggressively hiring. And one transition that we've been able to do with an IRSCI is we've now got direct hire authority, which basically means if you've got people that, uh, you know, that are listening, that are out there, that, that have the minimum accounting qualifications, which is 15 credit hours and, uh, and some related business and, 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 uh, other education or experience doing investigations, financial investigations, they can meet one of our recruiters at an event, uh, pass on a resume, that resume gets passed to me, I can look it over, talk to our recruiters on, you know, whether or not they think this person's highly qualified, we can bring them in for an interview relatively quickly and onboard them. And, and we've essentially cut, you know, six to nine months out of the process that it used to have before. And so we we, uh, this is the first time within IRS that we've been able to do that and certainly within IRS criminal investigation. And so we're trying to use that, you know, as much as we can to replenish our ranks. We want to get, you know, back up to an appropriate number, uh, you know, that, that we can give the service that, that I think the public expects from us. And I don't know what that number is, but I can tell you we're not anywhere near it. So for the foreseeable future, we will be uh, recruiting full time. Well, it certainly seems like they're in good hands right now, Ty. I feel like we could keep talking. I could keep picking your brain for for quite some time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, but I, again, just kind of in, in, in closing here, irs.gov, I encourage anybody interested in learning more about criminal investigation to head over there. Tyler, again, I appreciate your time today. Anything else you wanted to close with? No, John. Hey, again, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to chat. And it's uh, it's always fun to talk about what I've been doing for so long and 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 what great people we have. And I think if you, you know, going back on the recruiting, I think if if you just do some research and look out there, IRS uh, in general and more so IRSCI is one of the best places to work in government. And and you know, I wouldn't be here for 21 plus years if that wasn't true. So I appreciate your time and and uh, look forward to chatting maybe a, a, another time. Likewise, look forward to it, Tyler. I appreciate it again. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fraud Talk. You can find all episodes of Fraud Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. I'm John Duffley, signing off.